Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Morning. Uh, through a bizarre a glitch in the matrix of our scheduling program, I was selected to preach this morning. I'm just kidding. Not really. It was planned. Uh, I'm Eric Van Dyne, one of the elders here. Usually I play guitar, uh, but I get to preach every once in a while. So I will dismiss. Uh, we do have Elevate today for first and second graders. And as you heard from Kayla, the kids that are moving up uh, are welcome to join that group. So if you want to head out this door this week. And uh, next week we'll have EGC uh, for the third through fifth graders. Uh, this morning we're going to be continuing on in a series uh, talking about our missional practices And we're going to start by reading out of Psalm 95. We're actually going to read all of Psalm 95. So if you want to turn there or navigate there uh, and join me, I will read this together out of God's Word. So let's read this, Psalm 95. It says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Let me pray, and then we'll continue on. God, thank you for your word, uh, which has been here long before we were and will outlast us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. I pray that you would speak to us this morning uh, through the word that you have given to us, uh, through the words that I have. I pray that you would use me uh, to make coherent sentences, to speak uh, your words to your people, and above all, send your spirit to minister to our hearts and soften them before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned, we've started a series last week kind of looking at our missional practices. So at Refuge, uh, whether you're new or you've been here a long time, we have been working to develop a set of practices and rhythms that we have throughout the year. Uh, And we we start usually at the beginning of the year looking at personal practices and disciplines. How do we grow our, our relationship with Jesus? And that's through prayer, study, fasting, and meditation. And then in the middle of the year, around the summertime, we focus on practices that, we, that, we, that come under the umbrella called one another, where we practice what does it look like to minister to one another, to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, various things like that. And then in the fall, uh, we try to emphasize the rhythms or practices of, of missional. How do we, as the people of God, carry out, uh, help to carry out his mission? And uh, what, is the, what do those practices look like? And so uh, last week we talked about um, public, public faith. And this week we're going to talk about gathered worship. 
So gathered worship seems kind of like an odd choice to be a missional practice because we're in here and not out there, right? So we'll talk a little bit about that today and what does that mean. But uh, my hope for us today is that as we proclaim the gospel in gathered worship, that our hearts will be softened to receive it and God will make himself known for the sake of the world. So we're going to talk about three things today. The first one is really the nature of worship. What is it? There's a whole lot of stuff we could say here, so forgive me if this feels like a lecture of content. Uh, I'll trust the Holy Spirit to make something relevant to you today. Um, But the overall context here, throughout history, God has been fashioning a people for himself who will love and obey him, who will express and nourish their corporate life together in gathered worship. So Psalm 95 is a great example, lots of things that we can pull out of it here. Uh, Written probably during the period where Israel inhabited the promised land uh, under the rule of the judges and the kings. So after they came out of Egypt and before they were sent into exile and returned is when this psalm was written, which kind of helps with some of the context. So it's a psalm of worship. Worship means approaching or engaging God in his presence on terms that he proposes and in the manner that he makes possible. That's, that's what we see in all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. We don't choose to come before God into his presence in, in just any way that we like, right? We see this um, in the Old Testament that entering the presence of God is a very big deal. Exodus 19, we've talked about uh, several times over the last months for, in different contexts, but that's the scene where God has rescued his people out of Egypt and he brings them to the, to the foot of Mount Sinai and says, I want to meet with you. I want to call you into my presence. And then he gives them a list of things. This is what you need to do to prepare. These are the rules of engagement before you come to the mountain and into my presence. Uh, and we see what happens there. And the people, uh, how to purify yourselves, where you can go, what you can touch and not touch, how far up you, the mountain you can go. Uh, and we saw in that encounter that the people of God said, once God showed up, They were afraid and said, we don't want to do any of that. Moses, you go do that for us. Um, So it didn't didn't go as according to plan, but uh, God made it work. And then we see in the temple, in the tabernacle especially, the tabernacle in the temple especially, there's an even more explicit set of procedures and commands for when people were to engage with God in worship, to come into his presence. Very specific things that had to be done in order to offer Rituals for purification, for sin, for praise, offerings, various things for him. But now that we're not in the Old Testament anymore, what should our gathered worship look like? We're not the Old Testament Israelites. So how should we go about it? And how is any of this gathered worship missional? Let's start by looking at Psalm 95 and see what it can tell us. So this passage can be broken down into three sections. Um, we have a section about rejoicing at the beginning. We have a section about reverence over, of, of who God is, and then a section of responding. So if I was a Baptist preacher, that would be my three R's for the sermon, and we would just be done. Uh, rejoicing, reverence, and responding. Um, or, or anybody, really. Um, verse 1 and 2, it says this. It says, praise the Lord, make a joyful noise. It uses the, the language, come with thanksgiving. This, this language is engaging our emotions or our affections to come with a joyful response. Why? The psalmist goes on in verse three, three, and 3 through 5 and says, here's the reminder of the truth, of why we should respond with joy. He says, Yahweh is the true God above all gods. He rules over all of creation from the depths of the earth 
to the heights of the mountain, the sea. He is sovereign over all things. And then there's a call to reverence in verse 6. And he says, worship and bow down to kneel before the Lord. This engages our will or our chooser. What are we going to bow before? We must recognize his authority over us. And not just God's authority over the rest of creation, but over me. Why do we have to do that? The psalmist follows up in verse 7 and says, We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. This is an interesting picture that even as I looked at it this week, this is a common picture of God being the shepherd and we being the sheep or the, uh, as his people. Uh, we see lots of things that you can draw from this. God is not an iron-fisted ruler over creation that's just trying to squeeze us, but a, care, a caring shepherd who provides for his sheep. This God has made us for relationship with him. And then the psalm has a dramatic change in mood. And this happens a lot in the psalms. There'll be a psalm, of a kind of a beautiful thing about praising God and thank you for providing for us. And oh, by the way, can you curse my en enemies and smash their teeth and destroy them? And you're like, what? where did this go wrong? But um, I didn't write them. But this is a, there's a dramatic turn of events here in verse 8. And this, here we're called to engage our mind, our reason, our thinking, to remember who God is and what he has done. The psalmist gives us a warning. He says, Do not harden your hearts as in the day of Meribah at Massa. So as usual with Scripture, we need a little bit of context to know what in the world that means. Uh, we had a, there was an interesting conversation at my house this week over a collect phone call. Does anybody in this room know what a collect call is? Okay, so nobody under 25 or 30 knows what a collect call is. And so to even say that, you have to give a whole lot of context, right? We had these things called telephones. They lived on the wall. They weren't attached to your hand. When you wanted to talk to somebody, you could talk to people that were close to you for free, but you had to pay extra money to call long distance. I don't know why, because it's just electricity moving farther down the wire that doesn't make sense at all. But we had to pay extra, and if you didn't have the money, See, there's, then you had to have somebody do a collect call. All of these things that you have to explain to just say, this is a collect call. That's kind of what we have here in this psalm, where, where the psalmist says, remember this time as, as what happened in the past. So what happened in the past here at Mirabah and Massa? Let's look here because it's important. In Exodus chapter 17, the people of God, as we talked about, had come out of Egypt this is the generation of people that had walked through the Red Sea. They'd seen the plagues on Egypt. But they had traveled for, many, for, for years in the desert. And they complained against Moses and against God. And said, God, have you brought us out here to kill us? We'd much rather be in slavery in Egypt than we would be out here. We're going to die. And so God gave Moses a command to strike the rock to strike a rock, and water came out for the people to drink, to quench their thirst. And so this was, this was a place that Moses named these two names, which means, uh, I forgot to write them down, but uh, it, it signifies the rebellion of their hearts, the hardness of their hearts against God. But this wasn't just a one-time incident that happened as the people of, of Israel journeyed out of, ex, out of Egypt. In Numbers 14, they failed to listen and obey after the ten spies reported on the land. God said, go in and I will be with you, but they refused. So the consequence of that rebellion was the entire generation that came out of Egypt 
was barred from ever entering the promised land. And then in an echo of events from the past, Numbers chapter 20, the people again grumble against Moses and against God. They're thirsty and tired and hungry, and they've been wandering in the desert. This is now the second generation of, of people that have grown and aged, the second generation coming out of Egypt. And God says, Moses, speak to the rock, and it will crack open, and water will be provided for the people. And Moses gets so angry that he berates the people. He yells at them for their disobedience and their stubbornness. He strikes the rock twice with his staff, which is what God asked him to do years before, but not what he asked him to do now. And because of this disobedience, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. God provided for his people, but there was a consequence. All of these incidents are wrapped up in this reference that the psalmist gives us, this warning that the psalmist gives us in our worship. He's calling to mind that both the people of God and the leaders have sinned, failing to trust in God's words and his commands. These are historical events that expose a deep-seated and recurring tendency in all of us to become hardened in heart, as the psalmist says. In any age, God's people suffer from the same problems, lack of trust and obedience. So the psalmist warns us here, we are the disobedient sheep of his pasture. But the psalm shows us that true worship engages all parts of our being, our emotions and affections, our will, the part of us that chooses, and our mind. We also see in our own lives that these parts of us are broken by sin and rebellion as well. So maybe a summary of this warning is that failing to worship is an indication of a hardening heart. And we have a strong warning here about that. Failing to trust and obey has disastrous consequences as we saw in Exodus for the people. But if we worship God as our shepherd, then surely we as sheep must follow him as sheep of his pasture. We have a role and responsibility to obey. So how do we fight against the hardening of our hearts? In the context of worship, how do we worship together in the midst of our brokenness and hardened hearts? So we move to worship in practice. So that's worship kind of coming out of Psalm 95. What do we do today and how is that connected to what we see there? We gather together to do lots of things that we also practice elsewhere as part of the Christian life, right? There's no surprises here. When we gather together, we pray, we study, we meditate, we encourage one another, we bear one another's burdens. All of these are practices that we don't, we don't say fall under our missional practices of, of refuge, but they're interwoven together with the other things that we're, the other areas that we're trying to grow in. It can seem confusing when we talk about these things. Well, how can gathering for worship be a missional practice? Are we supposed to pray or not pray? I thought prayer was a personal thing. Is that not? What's going on here? So one of the most important aspects of worship, gathering, of gathered worship, is proclaiming the story of God. Proclaiming the word is to announce something officially or publicly. 
Peter, 1 Peter says this, We proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 John says, We proclaim the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. To proclaim also means to declare something important with an appropriate degree of emphasis. So when we worship together, when we gather together to worship, we proclaim the truth. We say to one another, this really matters to you and to me and ultimately to everyone. What we proclaim also matters, the content of it. So when it comes to our broken hearts and how we are created to worship, we proclaim all kinds of things with our words and our actions. We proclaim with our actions and our words that wealth matters. I will work more overtime. I will chase that job to get the raise. I will stand up this side hustle to make more money. Our actions reflect that. Comfort matters. I need some me time. I don't have time for you. Acceptance matters. I have to participate in elite sports or I have to participate in these activities or I won't be accepted or my child won't grow up and be accepted by the rest of society. Family matters. Where do we begin to Id where we idolize family? How do we diagnose these things? What hurts the most when it's taken away? What drives us crazy when it doesn't work out? Our words and our actions are indicators of where our hearts have turned in worship, where they've been hardened. But as God's people, as those who've been rescued by Jesus, we've been called to proclaim something very specific. Psalm 96, the one right after this, verse 2, encourages us to proclaim his salvation from day to day. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, We are saved in order to proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus. So as we gather to worship, what, what should, where should our structure come from? What are we supposed to do? Here at Refuge, we have a lot of different church backgrounds. Uh, I love sitting through, uh, going through the essentials class and meeting new people and hearing folks coming in from all different church backgrounds uh, and some that don't come from any church background, which is okay too. But everybody has a style that they've been, uh, that they've been a part of, that they think is right. Often in the past and in other places, in various places, how we worship, how we proclaim this good news has been determined by things such as arbitrary rule. I'm in charge here, we're gonna do it this way. Sometimes it's personal taste by those who have the most influence. What I like is to do things this way. Sometimes the driver of our worship structure is church tradition. We've always done it this way. Of course this is how we'll continue to do it. And sometimes it's driven by cultural preference. What will people find acceptable or attractive or enjoyable? But the danger in all of these things as we put together a structure for worship is that our ceremonies only possess a form of godliness but without the power of God to move and work. That's the warning in 2 Timothy. So then how should we go about proclaiming the truth as we gather to worship? The design patterns of Scripture, as well as the explicit passages about gathered worship, point us to the redemptive pattern of the gospel. 
surprise, right? It's like coming to church at refuge is like every, is going to Christmas and you're like, I, I know what's happening tomorrow. Every day is Christmas, we're gonna get the same thing. Um, proclaiming the truth. So the redemptive pattern of the God's presence, and remember, that's, a, that's an important thing. You don't just do that in your t-shirt and shorts, right? You, there's stuff you have to do to prepare. And so he has a vision and says, I come before God and I see the angels worshiping him and praising him and I immediately recognize my need for atonement. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't be accepted here. But then God provides a way for him to be accepted. He cleanses him and calls him in and says, I need you to go for me. He is sent. Isaiah 6 follows this redemptive pattern of the gospel. Almost all of the New Testament epistles, the letters, uh, follow this format as well if, as you read through them. They begin with a praise to God for who he is and what he's done. There's a call to repentance of the people for some error that they've, been, that they've fallen into. There's a presentation of Jesus as the good news of redemption. And then there's instruction for how do we live in response. This is the messages that we've received from him. This is the pattern that we see in Scripture. Psalm 95, the one we just read, falls into the same structure and, and pattern. We can see elements of that and draw that out. It's more fully informed by Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. The writer of Hebrews takes this psalm and says, I would like to expand on that and explain some more things for you. And he ultimately gets to the good news of the gospel that we've received. So we see in Psalm 95, even here, there's praise to God as the ruler over all things. There's this call to enter into his presence. There's a submission to God in humility. There's instructional warning for us to receive and encouragement towards obedience in life. Hebrews 4, as I mentioned, is a continuation of this, and the writer points specifically to Jesus as our ultimate hope and our ultimate confidence as the provider of our rest. So if this redemptive story pattern is present then we worship God according to this gospel pattern that we see. Not because of arbitrary rules that we put in place of all the things that I mentioned before, but because the content of the gospel shapes our response to it. What does that mean? The content of the gospel shapes our response to it. We love God only because he revealed the gospel to us. Right? Without God working in our hearts, we would be dead set on rebelling against him and doing what we want to do. But God has graciously revealed himself to our hearts. So it's natural that our expressions of love would be framed by this same contour of this redemptive work. The gospel is, is a love language, if you will, of God. He has spoken it to us, and so we speak it back to him and to one another. The pattern of representing the gospel that we see in Scripture is based not just on historical liturgies of the church, but on the consistent message and patterns of all of Scripture. The gospel narrative does not simply form the structure for our worship, but it also stimulates us to mission on behalf of the one we worship. So by representing the gospel, we remind ourselves and each other that our worship is a response to God's grace, to what he has done for us. It's not an infusion or a conjuring of God's grace. What do I mean by that? This is good news, 
When we worship, we can worship out of a response, as those who've been forgiven, as those who have been given what they do not deserve in a good way. We don't have to come here to create an emotional experience, and we haven't missed it if we leave here without a supercharged smile or a pep in our step. Hopefully, we're leaving our gathered times with a deep sense of gratitude, of humility, and joy at what Jesus has already done for us and is continuing to do for us and a desire to grow by applying these truths to our lives. The pressure is not on us, but we respond to what God is already doing. It's interesting that there's a conspicuous lack of precise mechanics in the New Testament and intricate details about what we're supposed to do when we gather together. There's a few passages where Paul especially addresses some weird stuff that's happening and says, let's put a box around that and say not very much farther than that. But otherwise, there's not a lot of explicit instruction. Ephesians chapter 5 gives us a little bit. It says this, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That sounds good. I think there's some things we can pull out of there, but it doesn't tell us how many songs we should sing, where should we put the offering, how many jokes should we make during the announcements, how long should Trey preach. All of those things, they're, they're not prescribed. And you can, you can look at the rest of the New Testament as well. How do we live in response? How do we gather in response to this? The New Testament writers, it seems, are more concerned with how our hearts respond to the message of grace that we've received than to how well we can precisely execute each component of a worship ceremony. And this is should be no surprise, is true for, the most, for most of the areas of our Christian life. The New Testament writers are more concerned with our gospel understanding and the motivation of what's working in our hearts and less concerned with the minutia of specific practices or things that we're doing. So practically speaking, what do we do at Refuge? Well, if you've been here for very long, we retell the story of God and the good news that we have received because of Jesus. That's what we do when we gather. We tell this story in four parts. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. We do this through readings, mostly from God's word, and songs that are full of truth. The words tell us the truth in the song. The music helps to stir our affections, for tell us how are we supposed to respond to this truth that we're singing about and, and reading about. We also talk about opportunities for relational connection and serving, and we pray for needs within the body of believers. We talk about the practices of stewarding all parts of our life as a response for being brought into this family of God. We sit under the teaching of God's word, letting it guide our minds, our hearts, and our wills as we seek to live in response to the forgiveness that we've received. We commune with God through a meal we recognize the cost of forgiveness and we celebrate the grace with which it has been given to us in Jesus. And then we are blessed to go out into the world as a forgiven people, loving, serving, 
working and praising the one who has made us into something new. Sometimes we do this really well. Sometimes we're silly. Sometimes we're clumsy. Sometimes it's unclear. But in all of these things, we strive to present, to represent this redemptive pattern that God uses to bring, to redeem people back to him. So if worship is something that we're called to do, as we see in Psalm 95, and it's empowered and shaped by the gospel, how do we practice it? How do we practice gathered worship? We'll spend some time here. I don't know if you've noticed, but I have a fitness goal that I've been working on, off and on, for a long time. That goal is to look muscular in an athletic-shaped T-shirt. The good news is I am 50% of the way there. I have bought the T-shirts. All I have left to do is to build up the muscles. How hard can this be? The bad news is the last 50% of my plan is very, very hard. Um, uh, just like physical fitness, all of the spiritual practices that we talk about are intended to be rhythms of faithfulness that we practice over and again, that bring transformation slowly, not a burst of success that brings accomplishment all at one time, but transformation that happens slowly. Gathered worship and how we practice it together is no different. We must practice it regularly. So a, couple of, a few things here. First of all, be present. Worship is both an individual and a communal response. We see this in Romans chapter 12, which is a beautiful, a long and beautiful passage about how do we offer ourselves, our bodies as a living sacrifice. There's a section in there that says, where Paul uses the illustration of a body functioning together and says we're all gifted in different ways, but we need to be present together in order for that body to function well. And when we do that, that we can offer uh, something that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. Romans 12, 6, he says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. We need you here. You may say, well, I can worship God on my own out in creation. That's good practice, but we need you here to help us appreciate the majestic beauty of what God has made. I can worship God on my own and study. That's great practice, but we need you here to help the rest of us understand and appreciate the depths of wisdom that's in God's Word. I can worship God on my own singing in the car. That's great practice, but we need you here to encourage us, stirring our affections towards the one who has rescued us, and on and on. Whether it's during this official 90-plus minutes of service time, or if it's in the before time or after time, as we gather together, your presence and your gifts are needed here as part of the body. So be present. Number two, encourage one another. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10 here, um, verse starting in verse 24. The writer says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, that's a little heavy-handed, Sarah, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day 
drawing near, encouraging one another as you meet together. So how do we encourage one another in the Lord? It's not with uh, pithy sayings that may have a, a, a hint of wisdom. It's not with empty promises or verses taken out of, a, out of context from a coffee mug, but it's with the very truth of God that is working in us and changing us. If we go back to the beginning of that section, Mike, please, in verse 19, he writes this first, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hopes without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All of those things have been done for us by Jesus. We didn't have to do anything to come into the presence of God because Jesus has satisfied the requirements for us. But as he says there, let us hold fast to this confession, this trust that we've placed in Christ of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The only God who has passed all the way through death and back into life everlasting in order to rescue his children will not abandon us. He who promised has been faithful generation after generation. This is how we can encourage one another, reminding each other of this truth. We soak it in, but then practice using it to encourage one another. Third, participate. I know we're a group largely of introverts. Some people are nervous to express themselves. I get it. I am too in a lot of ways. But I want to encourage you to engage with the story as we tell it together. Think about the truth of God's word as we read responsively together. Let the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus move you to respond as we sing, to sing loud. When we read or sing a confession of our sin, don't just read it, reflect internally. Do the work. Confess. This is where I have abandoned you or rebelled. God, forgive me. I trust that you will because of Jesus. When we sing, let the music that we hear help stir our affections to respond to the truth of the words. When we hear God's word, let us submit to its authority and respond in obedience. As we prepare for communion, which we'll do shortly, let us pray with authenticity let us cling to the assurance of forgiveness that we have because of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection, and celebrate the meal that we've been given but that we don't deserve. We faithfully do these things every week in order to remind and encourage one another. So participate. There's a danger here, right, of doing things every week. I know that um, sometimes doing things every week can make some of those elements reduce, seem like they're not as potent or meaningful anymore. I would say this is especially true for the people up front here. If you've heard a song once and you're like, oh, this song, the worship team that week has heard that song five times. 
If you've read a scripture on the screen, the person organizing the worship has read that scripture 10 times during the week. It's easy to let those things wash over us, especially those who are preparing them. And yet, we're called to engage, to participate in the truth here. We gather to proclaim to ourselves and to one another what we know to be the eternal reality. There is one God, sovereign over all things. With our hardened hearts, we've rebelled against him. He has sent his son to die for our sinful rebellion. Through Jesus, we have peace with God the Father. We've been both forgiven and set free from our bondage to sin. So this motivates us to live in obedience to his commands. So we work and practice and wait until the ultimate restoration of all things. I encourage you to participate as we, in our gathered worship time. And then, I hope this is finally, I'm about out of pages here. Awesome. Um, second from the last, I've lost track of the numbers. Cultivate the fruit. So as we're practicing worship, as we're doing these things together, what can we look for to figure out, is this working? Is something happening? How can practicing singing and reading and learning and praying and communing together help us to become more like Jesus, more like the new creation in Colossians 3? It reminds us first that the gospel is the thing that changes us. We're a new creation. We've died with Christ and we've been raised to, him with, uh, to walk with him with new life. We just saw this in the last two weeks in the sacrament of baptism. So there's five things. I'm sure there's many, but here's, here's five things you can put down to say. Is there transformation happening as I practice, as we practice worshiping together? Worshiping God should make us humble. This humility is brought by an ever-deepening understanding of the gospel, of how lost that we are, and yet how loved we are by the Creator who's come after us. It should make us humble. Worshiping God should make us more secure. Jesus has already accomplished for us what we could never do, reconciliation with the Father. When we trust in his completed work, our salvation is secure. We can also rest secure in the faithfulness of God to his people throughout all generations as we see in Scripture and unpack it. It should make us more secure. Worshiping God should also make us more grateful Gratitude is a response that we should see welling up in us for what he has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, but also for God's daily provision for us in our lives. Worshiping God should make us holy. This is a tricky one. What does that mean? What does it mean to be made holy? The more we love and worship God together, the more we hate sin and brokenness and all of its manifestations that we see in our own lives and in the lives of each other. We confess, we repent, we ask for forgiveness, we seek reconciliation from one another, we pray for one another, we encourage one another towards holiness as our eyes are opened to sinfulness and brokenness. And then ultimately, under the umbrella as we see in parts of Scripture, worshiping God should make us loving in 1 John chapter 4, he writes this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen here in flesh, cannot love God whom he has not seen. 
And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Who is him? John chapter 15, the gospel writer says, the words of Jesus speaking says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, how? As I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's a verse that you've probably heard a bunch of times. I've heard it a bunch of times. And I think the power of this verse is not so much uh, laying down your life as in I will, glad, I will willingly push you out of the way of an oncoming car and take the brunt of this car and probably lose my life in the process. That's an easy way to envision that. And we would all say, oh yeah, I'll do that. I would do that for you. It's much harder to say, will I lay down my comfort for this afternoon to go visit someone who's sick? Will I give up this event that I planned tomorrow night to go spend time with somebody who's in need? Will I go to someone's house to help them uh, when I know that it's not somebody I particularly care for and they irritate me? That is a part of laying down our life, lives for one another that shows that we are becoming more loving. Am I seeing a willingness to give up my time, comfort, or resources for something else? These are fruits that we can see. Humility, security, gratefulness, holiness, and love are fruits that we can see bubbling up out of us as we continue to practice worshiping together. And finally, we'll bring it back here to the end of the psalm. At the end of Psalm 95, the psalmist talks about entering into a Sabbath rest, the rest of God. The writer to the Hebrews takes up this topic in detail and defines for us that the ultimate rest that we have is found not in a promised land, not in any sort of government, but it is found in Jesus. In Jesus, the work of salvation is complete. In Jesus, we have received forgiveness and reconciliation with God. In Him, we find value and worth in life. So as we practice worshiping together, in this time, we can enter into a true Sabbath rest. Because of the gospel, we can rest even from our good works, trusting that God will accomplish his purposes through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. What does that mean to rest from our good works? Does that mean I don't have to do the good things that I just encourage you to do anymore? That means we can take a break, a moment, from all of the to-do lists, from all of the people that we have not connected with, and we can lay those at the feet of Jesus and say, I trust that you are sovereign over all things, that you will accomplish the ministry to these people with and without me. And we can con continue to be faithful and obedient. We've talked a lot about Sabbath as a day, and I won't get into that here. But this Sabbath rest, there's an aspect here of trusting in the good news that God has provided for us and leaning on him. So in closing... The writer of Hebrews, when taking up the subject of this warning out of Psalm 95, says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any evil and be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you away from the living God. Be careful. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So as we gather, as we proclaim the gospel to one another in our gathered worship, 
The gospel of Jesus works in us by the power of the Spirit. It transforms our worship into a living sacrifice, as we see in Romans 12, holy and pleasing and beautiful before God the Father. As we practice worshiping together, God's Spirit works in us, yes, but also through us to make His glory known for the sake of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for revealing yourself in your word, that you've made yourself known in creation and in your word, that you did not spin up creation and remain aloof, especially when we rebelled against you, but you came down over and over again to call a people to yourself, to reconcile them to you, and ultimately, uh, in the person of Jesus, to accomplish this task once and for all time rescuing us by the power of his life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for providing a way that we can come and gather together as your people, as those who have received forgiveness that you freely offered, that we're not just roaming out on our own trying to figure out what does it mean to live in response, but you've given us the opportunity to gather together to worship you, to more fully understand the grace that you've poured out on us that we didn't deserve. God, I pray that in the days, months, and years to come, as we practice gathering together, whatever it looks like with our songs and our readings and the way that we do all of the things that we do when we gather together, I pray that you would help us to not only faithfully retell this story, the story of the gospel, of the good news, but that you would send your spirit every single time to speak that good news to our own hearts and that you would send your spirit out from this place to speak that good news to the world around us. God, we respond. We're grateful to you for what, who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. We are called, we are... Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.